this morning, so um, I have the introductions. If you could turn in your Bible to page 1392, page 1392, and it's going to be 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read out of starting in verse 8, but we have a couple of announcements, so while you're turning, I want to share with you that Raul third is having surgery probably this morning, Roel thinks. The last word that he got was that he would be having gallbladder surgery. He was down in San Antonio and started having some problems, and so um, they're going to be taking him in, so we want to pray for Roel third. And a praise is he said Roel Jr. is doing very well. He's gaining weight, and... He is, um, of course, when he has his chemo, he's knocked down just for a day or two. But Roel said he comes right back and is strong and healthy. And so we're just going to praise the Lord for this place. And then we also want to re keep remembering and praying for Rubia as she is in um, Africa somewhere. <laughs> so down in the southern eastern part, I believe, maybe right now is kind of what we think, possibly down into Sudan. And uh, they are doing uh, some work there for For Africa. That's the name of the organization she's with. And they normally do wells and I think help to feed the people over there. But they're working on an education program now. And so uh, bless the Lord in all that he's doing in this country. And bless the people that would be willing to go and to be the hands and feet of Jesus as, um, as they travel. We want to pray for them. So we have a great message from the Lord this morning out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or revival, I'm sorry, revile for revile, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What a great word to start with this morning. What a great call to God's people, 
to walk out these truths. I love this place that sometimes we fall short to remember because he says his ears are open to their prayers, those who walk in righteousness. His ears are open to those prayers of those who walk in righteousness. Sometimes I think that we just uh, get the understanding or the idea that whoever we are and whatever we are, that God hears our prayers. I do think he does, so I want to be careful about that. I think sometimes when we're in a desperate situation and we're maybe not even walking with the Lord, he will hear our prayers as we call out to him to return to him. But those places where we continue to walk in our own ways and our own flesh, I don't think God hears our prayers. And I think that's a troubling place for us to all um, be made aware of today. So if you'll pray with me, please. Father God, we just come so excited to meet with you today, Father. We come with our hearts open, Father, to sing to the King of Kings, to the Great I Am, to praise you, Father, to lift your name on high, to share in your greatness, in your glory, and in your presence, Lord, in this place this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be lifted high by these testimonies of, um, of renewed places of Raul, Father, that Raul Jr. is doing better. And, Father, we lift your name on high for that. We've been praying for him. His, uh, his father has been praying and mother have been praying for him. And, Father, we know that your hand and your hand alone is what is sustaining him and what is restoring him. And so, Lord, we pray continuously over this word that you have getting, given over Raul that he, this cancer would not take his life, Father. So, Father, we rejoice in that place, Father. Father, we thank you that you have called us to pray along with what you're doing in uh, Rubia's life, Father. Father, and in this team that she has joined with to go to Africa. Lord, we cannot imagine all the things that you have in store for this people. But Lord, we rejoice in that place, Father. We thank you for the water wells that they have dug. We thank you for the planting of food you've taught them how to do. And Lord, we rejoice in the places of education that you're working in now. Lord, there are some that are troubled and worried in these places, Father. I've, I see that and that they are have great concerns. And Lord, we lift those people up to you, Lord. We ask that your power would fall upon this team and that they would walk in your spirit, Father. And that, Father God, we pray for miracles and signs of wonders that would happen that would all lead to your greatness, Lord. Lord, we pray for this time, Lord, that you would be glorified in every song that is sung and that, Lord Jesus, you alone is worthy of all praise. Lord, we thank you as we join in this place of worship this morning, Father. May you be magnified and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. God, take us back to the place we began. The simple pursuit 
God take us back to an unswerving faith in the power of your name. A heart beating for your kingdom to reign. A church that is known for your presence again. God take us back.
There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an acre for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed The victory is won He is risen from the dead And I will rise When He calls my name No There's a day that's drawing near When this darkness breaks to light And the shadows disappear And my faith shall be my eyes Jesus has overcome And the grave Yeah.
Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with y'all. Um, I should begin by saying that this morning when Deborah and I talked, we, we, we pray before each message that is given, and, and Deborah was looking pretty intensely at me, and she said, are you okay? And I think what she was wondering is that I looked a little t- intense, or maybe tense, I'm not quite sure, but um, I told her I'm great, but that as I've been studying these things, I've been living in these scriptures that I'll share with you today, um, and so I, I, I'm a little intense because these aren't just things that I'm sharing with you, but things that the Lord has been doing in me that I share with you. So um, forgive me if I'm a little intense today. We will begin in Philippians chapter 4, if you're in the church's Bible, on page 1351. Philippians chapter 4, page 1351. On Friday night, um, Deborah taught about some very challenging things. She taught about the spiritual realm and three different heavens. There's a whole lot more that she taught, but in a nutshell, she, she taught about those things. And she and I were talking about the difficulty of grasping things like that. The difficulty of grasping the spiritual realm and, and even just things that are basic and scripture. We are from a different time than our Bible, aren't we? 2,000 years we live after these things have written, and many things that we read in scripture took place long before that. So we're from a different time and a different situation from these things, and culturally and spiritually, we've just been poorly conditioned and poorly informed regarding things like prophecies and heavenly tears and true spiritual warfare. What I'm saying is this, I don't think that our challenge is understanding, it's accepting. It's accepting that things like eternity and the heavens and Satan are foreign to things like McDonald's and the Dallas Cowboys. The greater tension that we have is to accept, to believe, and to respond to spiritual truths. And not just sit and eat our hamburger and watch football. This week, as I've read about the Philippian church, I see how similar we are to this church. And how realistic the situation that Paul is going to give us today is to what we might encounter in this body. During, during the time of the church in Philippi, they were no larger than 100 people and often as small as 25 people. So we can identify to a body of this size, maybe meeting in a space much smaller than we enjoy. In this church, there was a dispute between two members, Euodia and Sintichi. This dispute affected the entire church. 
So the stage is set for us to easily imagine a scenario like this in our midst. Now, I cannot prove it, but I want to introduce to you a big philosophical idea that I think was present in the first century. The idea is this. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Now, it may not have existed word for word in the Greek this exact way, but I'm pretty sure this sentiment existed 2,000 years ago. And it certainly exists today, doesn't it? We are quite fond of this phrase. And this statement seems to be way on up there with the highest grounds of absolute truth. There's nothing more American than our entitlement to our rights, or more personally, our opinions. So today I'm going to make a bold ask of each of you. Forfeit your rights and abandon your opinions. Because our founding fathers, they haven't offered us a republic or a democracy. The power does not rest in us in any way, shape, or form. Instead, Paul would tell us that our citizenship is in heaven alone, where all power resides and flows from the Most High God, from His Son, and from His Spirit. For by Him all things are created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Period. So today let us have this mind, let us have this in mind, as we seek to understand these ancient words that have eternal significance. Our passage today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Um, two things I want to point out before we begin to read. The first is that this letter is written to the Philippian church as a whole. It is written to a whole body of believers. But this passage today mentions two groups. The first group are these that we've mentioned, these two ladies, Euodia and Sintichi, who have a serious disagreement. The second group is in verse 3, it is a person or persons that Paul refers to as a true companion. So these are the two groups that Paul is going to mention by name. There are two sections that we'll read this morning. Uh, the first is in verses 2 and 3, and Paul urges these women, Euodia and Sintichi, to be united. The second section is verses 4 through 7, where Paul will instruct everyone reading, he will instruct us as well, how to live. It's one of Paul's favorite things to do, is to tell us how to live, because Paul has some great insight. And in a nutshell, I believe what Paul tells us is to be long-suffering. Let's read together verses 1 through 7. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, and longed-for brethren, my crown and joy... So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, 
Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, so to begin, verse 1 that we started with actually belongs more with the previous passage we studied from last week. Uh, Sometimes our chapter and verse designations put things in such a way that they're easy to find, but this verse really acts as a conclusion to last week, but it's really a good connector for us as well, because in the previous passage, Paul, Paul says in verse 21 that we should be assured of a bodily resurrection, which is a great thing to look forward to. He says it's all the more reason that we should stand fast in the Lord. Paul calls the Philippians, his crown and joy. The crown he mentions is different than one that's given to a king or a queen. It's really a trophy for one that wins a race. So it's interesting because Paul says that if the Philippians stand fast in the Lord, they're like a trophy to him. It's to these people, these beloved friends, that Paul calls them to be united. Verse 2 really kind of tells us this. It says, in this corner we have Euodia, and in this corner we have Syntyche. It's important that we see that this is what he's saying. He's not mincing words. He realizes that these two people are in a quarrel. That is putting it politely. Such a quarrel that it has lasted many days, weeks, and maybe even years. This letter wasn't sent by email or text message. It didn't just happen upon Paul in prison, but it took many days for this situation to reach him, and many more days and weeks and months maybe for his letter to reach back to the church. So this quarrel is lasting a long time. Paul doesn't say what the issue is. There's no clear description anywhere in Scripture, which I think is intentional, to say that Paul doesn't really care what it's about. He doesn't care if it's about the communion wafers or the type of seating in the church. But it's obviously a disagreement that has influence. Hear that. Disagreement has influence. And one powerful enough that Paul would address it as a central point in his letter. Several weeks ago, when we began in Philippians, we talked about this idea of Christian unity, a popular message that often needs and uh, weaves together scriptures towards agreement and resolution that is completely divided from the Spirit. Think about all the, the, the avenues of Christian unity that we hear about, of being one, in God's body, of being one in how we vote or how we think. Think about how many times we talk about it being led by the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Ephesians 4 and the church's Bible back just a few pages on page 1345. 
Ephesians chapter 4, page 1345. And if you have have your finger there, keep your finger in Philippians 4 if you can. We'll read a few verses here in Ephesians 4. And Paul describes how the Holy Spirit is to function in believers. Let's read beginning in verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. What Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus is that they're basically to walk worthy of being called Jesus followers. Basically to act like believers. He cites these spiritual gifts like humbleness, long-suffering, and love. He says they are to endeavor to keep unity. Now, this passage is one that's commonly used to describe this Christian unity of being one in the body. And and basically that believers are to act in this type of behavior. And it sounds right, doesn't it? That type of thinking sounds right because Paul's got us acting like believers. He's got us having spiritual gifts. He's got us keeping unity. However, this idea leaves out where this unity lies. This unity is not with one another, but with the Holy Spirit. In verse 3, Paul says to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Peace is, of course, the gift that Jesus gave his disciples, this completeness and wholeness that comes from being in alignment with him and the Father. Paul goes on in this passage to clarify that for believers, he says in verses 4 through 6, that there is one body, that there is one spirit, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father. He repeats this as many times as he can to say there is one way for unity. And it has nothing to do with you and I. It has nothing to do with greeting each other with a hug or a handshake when we come in here. That is not unity. That's friendship. We can act like believers, even possess what looks like spiritual gifts, even act like others in the church that look right, all the while being void of unity, both as individuals and as a body, unless we have this Spirit of God. The same Paul that wrote this letter to the Ephesians wrote what we read and Philippians. So if you have your finger there, turn back. If not, we'll be on we'll be on page thirteen fifty one. Paul says to the church in Philippi and to Euodia and Syntyche a parallel message with what he's told us in Ephesians. In verse 2, he he says to Euodia and Syntyche, actually, the best way to understand what he says, to be of the same mind in the Lord is to agree 
with the Lord. See, we could read that and think, okay, if I'm just as the same mind as Deborah in the Lord, maybe as long as I'm in this place, in this church where the Lord's spirit is, Deborah and I can be of the same mind and we're good to go. Paul doesn't care about the same thoughts. He doesn't care about reading the same translation of the Bible or liking the same worship songs. What he cares about is our agreement with the Lord. That's a believer's unity. I almost want to pause here for several minutes and allow us to just chew on what this really means. That in every situation, unity is not with another, or a scripture, or a doctrine, or a worship song, or a restaurant. It's with the Lord. Paul singles out Euodia and Sentichi for our benefit. He uses their names to draw this entire church to this situation and us for an example. And while Paul's authority is to those in the church, right? Paul's not writing in prison to a bunch of people out in the town square. He doesn't have any right over the city as mayor. He's writing to this church. But his conflict resolution should be the same and applied to every dispute we might encounter whether it's inside these church walls, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's with friends or with spouses, we're not to exercise a different method because we're wearing a hat as pastor, husband, wife, friend, or employee. Agreeing with the Lord is the same in every situation because our preferred methods are going to allow us to receive bad advice to submit to the wrong authority, to focus on flawed logic, and to remain in spiritual blindness. Agreeing in the Lord, it eliminates considerations, attitudes, choices, and guesswork that not only keeps us in conflict with others, but with the Lord. See, we've got to see by being told to agree with the Lord, the conflicts that we're in, if we remain in them, we are choosing to be divided from the Lord. This doesn't mean that we're spiritually oblivious or that we let others walk all over us. But in disagreement, in animosity or division that we encounter, we must come to agree with the Lord. It's interesting enough that with that said in verse 2, verse 3 is one of the harder places for Bible translators and Bible scholars to agree with its meaning. Paul says in verse 3, he says, And I urge you also, true companion. Some translations may say, true partner or true yoke fellow. It's a really bizarre word that Paul uses here. It's the Greek word, tsudzojos. And it comes from a meaning to be yoked together like oxen like oxen that are harnessed together for the same function and direction. It has the understanding of a spiritual yoke fellow or a colleague or a companion. This is the only time that this word is used in the entire New Testament, so it has a lot of speculation as to what Paul means by it. Some think that this may be a proper name for somebody in the Philippian church, But that's unlikely because this word's not used in any other literature. Others think that it's a term that 
Paul was using to refer to a specific person like Epaphroditus or Luke. But what's really interesting about this word is that the entire letter of Philippians is written to what you, you English friends would say is the second person plural. In Texas, we like to say y'all, right? Y'all is the second person plural for you all. So if I'm talking to our body here and I say you, I'm looking around at everyone and including you in the second person plural to say you all. Paul does that for every verb in the book of Philippians except this one. And for this one, Paul uses the second person singular to say you alone. Not all of you, but you. He singles out this true companion and is very specific. And this is very complicated for translators because they they think, is he using some kind of fancy literary device like he uses in other places? Was there a person named Sudzojos in Philippi? Was Paul using this idea to address the whole church in some fancy way? And the reason this gets confusing is because we often don't want to be included in instruction, do we? We want instruction to apply to others or to one, but not to us. So it's easy for many to abstain from what I believe we are all called to here. I believe that it really doesn't matter because the sentiment is the same. A trusted spiritual friend, a person named Sudzojos, referring to the whole, per, uh, the whole church, or Paul saying, you know who you are. He's asking those who are spiritually mature. We should all be called this name, Sudzojos. We should all be his true companion. What's more important is what he says this true companion is to do. He says, help these women. These women who labored with Paul and others in the gospel. These women who labored with Clement and with him. These women whose names are in the book of life. This is so important because as he, as he writes about this quarrel in the church, he's not saying these are on outliers who come once in a while, these people who are frustrated with God, who are bringing dissent into God's body. He says these are people who know in whose citizenship they are. These are followers of Jesus. But there is something very wrong here. And you, true companion, are to help. As believers, we're not called to sit here as spectators while destruction happens in our midst. We're called to help. More important than this identity of the true companion is the help that Paul mentions. This likewise is a very interesting word he uses. It doesn't just mean buddy time or, or, or friendship or bringing a loaf of bread. This, this help is a word, sulambano. And it's a word that means to seize, to, to apprehend, or to capture. It's also translated as the most common word to mean pregnancy. Which is so interesting because I think it has to do with the biological things that are taking place inside a woman to make a pregnancy possible. This word has a similar root for what we read a few weeks ago in chapter 3 verse 12 where Paul says, grabbing hold of the things which Christ has grabbed a hold of me for. 
It has to do with seizing and clutching and snatching. This isn't the live life together kind of help that the church often circulates and relies upon. And it's obviously not the type of help that had already been tried by the Philippian church for the days, weeks, and years until Paul writes this. Nope. This is spiritually aggressive grasping. And helping these women seem to not need any further explanation by Paul to say this is what true companions do. True believers sees other believers for reconciliation through agreement in the Lord. The next few verses, verses 4 through 6, are consistently quoted, but remarkably undervalued. Let's read them again, verses 4 through 6. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men, the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Paul's words here stand as a part two to his firm instruction to Euodia and Syntyche. He says, rejoice. He, he says it with an explanation point. I really don't know how to say that more emphatically without screaming. Rejoice. Be gentle. And don't worry. These positive statements look really good imprinted on t-shirts and bumper stickers, don't they? But by themselves, they can either seem pretty underwhelming or even easy to embrace. Each word here, joy, gentleness, and anxiety, has a common meaning that is pretty remarkable. Each of these words are in spite of what's expected, in spite of what's warranted or deserved. So Paul doesn't just haphazardly say joy, gentleness, anxiety. Instead, he says these things are to be done and had and held in spite of the circumstances. This joy he mentions, Paul mentions joy 11 times in Philippians till this point. I almost wanted to read all of these scriptures, but I thought things might get lost there. Eleven times Paul mentions joy that we are to have. And this joy refers not because of circumstances, but in spite of them. Our joy is not to be found in outcomes or even relationships, but alone in the Lord. Again, he says, joy in spite of things and in the Lord. Next, he says gentleness. Paul uses a choice Paul-type word here for gentleness. It's not used many other places. The few times it is used, it means patience, softness, and forbearance. It conveys an attitude of kindness when, when, re excuse me, when retaliation is expected or even warranted. This gentleness, Paul says, is to be shown to all men, not just believers. He writes to believers, but he says this gentleness applies to everyone. And the mention Paul makes of Jesus' return is interesting. Why would Paul say that? It's as if he says Jesus will settle all upon his return. 
we, cannot, we can trust him to make all things right, even when the world around us seems to be falling apart at the seams. Hold your place here and turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 12 on page 1306. Romans chapter 12, page 1306. The same Paul writes over here to the church at Rome and I think unpacks this a little bit more for us what he means. And this is very close with what Deborah read for us this morning out of First Peter. In Romans 12, Paul says this beginning in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will, reap, you will excuse me, heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good. I love this phrase that we're not just to abstain from evil, but we are to return evil with good. Not just with politeness and kindness and cookies and blankets, but with God's purpose. Flip back to Philippians. You've lost your page on page 1351. The next place Paul mentions is anxiety. A word that might give us anxiety in and of itself, just thinking about it. And Paul commands them and us not to have anxiety about anything. He doesn't give a list of rules when it's appropriate. He says, never. This word is well used in the New Testament, and it doesn't even mean to be irrational. In fact, it's used to explain deep concern or worry over things. What Paul is telling them is that this is not their place and it's not ours. They and we are to break the cycle of what may seem normal behavior and to turn things over to God in spite of what we want. Hold your place here again and flip back a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1326. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 page 1326. We'll read a, a good body of, of scriptures here. We'll begin in verse 3 and read through verse 11. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are Comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation, and our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. 
For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble which came to us in Asia, that which we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. What what God wants is to supply for each of us a countenance and an attitude in the face of adversity that does not fit any normal expectations, thoughts, or actions. God doesn't want to just put out fires and solve problems. He wants us to depend on him so he can fill us with the full measure of strength that we need to go in his name to any situation for his purpose. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 4, page 1351. Finally is verse 7. Let's read verse 7 together. Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The and that begins verse 7 is more important than it looks. It's not just to include another statement, but it is the expected result of the things he's just shared with Euodia and Sintichi. Paul's advice in verses 2 through 6, he says, will will be realized in verse 7. If we do these things, then this, this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It, it almost seems like any peace should surpass our understanding, doesn't it? If we've lived one day this week, we know that peace is hard to come by. This word here that Paul uses is a a common word Jesus used. He'd come into a room and say, peace. He would encounter chaos and he would say, peace. It's the Greek synonym for the word shalom. A word that in the Old Testament was given as a measure to say that wholeness and completeness and righteousness can be found in God. The simplest definitions of this this word that Paul uses for peace means peace for a country, a state of national tranquility, exemption from rage of havoc and war. It means peace between individuals, harmony, and accord. It means security, safety, prosperity, and even happiness. 
More specifically, it is the peace that Jesus alone offers. This peace should allow us to break the bondage of normal behavior. In verse 7, Paul goes on to say, This kind of peace, it will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. The word that we read here for guard, it's, it's a unique word that, that it describes what's called a military garrison. And a garrison is a special post that is within a city so that it can provide protection for that city. This word for guard is the action of this garrison and its soldiers. It's to defend and to protect the city. The purpose of God's peace is not to make us feel better. The purpose of God's peace is to act in military defense for our hearts and our minds. There are lots of examples in the New Testament that we could understand these words of, of peace and guard, but the Lord gave me one in Acts chapter 7. Turn there with me on page 1262. Acts chapter 7, page 1262. We'll read about Stephen. Stephen, who we're told was a man full of God's grace and power and who performed great wonders and signs among the people. His opponents, um, of course, um, attempted to debate and argue with him about the gospel and the things they'd seen him do. But it tells us in Acts that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So because they could not find fault in him and Stephen and in his message, they accused him of blaspheming God and Moses. Ultimately, Stephen's message would allow him to be condemned and it would frustrate those who opposed God. Let's read in verses 54 through 60 of Acts chapter 7. Luke says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at his feet and a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling upon God and saying, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. We don't read the word peace in this passage. But I believe that it is exactly what Stephen had in despite of these non-peaceful circumstances. There was no state of tranquility, it would seem, or exemption from the rage or the havoc of war that was going on. There was no peace between him and these other individuals, no harmony, no concord. 
there was no security, safety, or prosperity, or happiness of any kind. But Stephen's unwavering commitment to the Lord even allowed him to ask for his opponent's forgiveness to the Lord. This is peace that surpasses all understanding. Stephen's countenance was in spite of what was expected and certainly warranted. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 4, page 1351. There's a lot of good one-liners in this passage in Philippians. A lot of good advice so long as we're not actually enduring these types of circumstances like Euodia and Syntyche. There's nothing impressive about rejoicing when things are good, is there? There's nothing hard about being gentle when everything is going our way. There's nothing challenging to avoid anxiety when there's nothing to worry about. Peace always sounds good, but it's not God's peace unless he provides it. And it doesn't just occur, but it is the result of our letting go and depending on him. This very notion of a guarded heart and mind means that without his peace, our hearts and our minds are without protection, they are without defense, and they are susceptible to attack. This passage does a lot to describe what is certain for each one of us if we rely on ourselves and we focus on what we're entitled to. This passage has been incredibly timely for me. The past month has been full of some pretty difficult workplace situations for me. There have been some who have had disagreements with me therefore I have found disagreement with them I'll pause and say that this is problematic because how will we come to agree in the Lord if they're not in the Lord often that's our excuse that we really can't follow what the Lord's asking us because they're playing by a different set of rules right Our unity with them doesn't matter. I've had to decide to agree with the Lord despite how my opponents, it would seem, would conspire. Thankfully, I've had some true companions this month forcibly seizing me, forcibly and spiritually grabbing a hold of me, The joy I have had, I'll say, has been limited only to what limits I've put on it. But it has been in him and not in any circumstance. Several situations that I've encountered over the last month could no doubt be met with extreme force and many would say warranted. However, the Lord has led me through the meekness that we've been called to here. And this meekness has proved to me the lone way forward. 
The enemy has worked hard for my fear and anxiety, but the Lord has given me peace. Peace that I'll say is no doubt undeserved and surprising, but peace that has surpassed what is rational understanding given the circumstances. I've seen that, that not only do my heart and mind need to be guarded and protected, not just from circumstances or pressures from the enemy, but from my own self. See, God's intent is to guard each of us, not just from the things that oppose us, but from we that oppose the will of God. What the Lord shown me in these verses is an absolute spiritual truth. To have his peace, we have to be in agreement with him. And if in agreement with the Lord, we are not entitled to privileges and opinions. Just this morning, as I'm driving to church, I encountered what you might call an unfriendly driver on the road. Something I do not prefer while driving is when somebody drives way too close to me and it's intentional that, or obvious that they're being intentional to do so. What is normal for me is to want to be frustrated, maybe even give that polite double tap of the brakes that will allow them to understand the error of their ways. After this went on for what seemed like an eternity, I thought, you know, I'm just going to pull off the road and let them pass me. They don't need to know my perspective on what they're doing. I don't need to even, as the person driving in front of them, use my privileges and American rights to let them know um, what they're doing is wrong or incorrect. My friends, the Lord Jesus himself has invited us. He's invited us to leave our privileges and opinions. He says to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I pray it would be so. Amen. And when I 
all I need Oh, it's all I need Won't you give me Jesus Oh, it's all I need In the morning when I rise When I lay Just give me cheese. 